full title of Professor Engel's four-part lecture series is Please, Mister, Can We Have Our Ball Back? Sport, the Media and the People. Matthew's kindly agreed to take some questions after today's lecture, and after that there will be a drinks reception in the Ruth Deach building here at St Anne's, to which everyone is warmly invited. So without further ado, may I ask you to welcome uh, Professor Engel, whose first lecture is entitled Life and Death? No, much more than that. How sport turned into big business, big news, and a global obsession. Thank you. Association football will improve with the introduction of the new professional player? No, Mr. Chumley Warner. These amateurs will never be bettered. You can't expect a professional, paid to do nothing but play football all day, to achieve the same level of physical fitness as a man who works in a chip shop all week and only plays football on Saturdays. There's Matthews, the man everyone, even the Bolton supporters, would love to see get a cup winner's medal. Probably the greatest footballer of all time. Certainly the greatest I've ever seen. And the result of the five o'clock race at York, first, uh, Frankincense, um, second, uh, Ashford Lee, and third, uh, Right Stuff. Great chance for Manchester City. Oh, and a great chance for Wolves as well. What happened, Phil Thompson? Come on, I'm not sure. I think he might have given the goal. Good evening. Welcome to Sports Cure. Tonight's programme ranges from racing to boxing, from football to skating. Can Laker get all ten? That's the question everyone's asking as he bowls to Maddox. Yeah, he's out! Ten wickets to Laker. Seven o'clock, they had nothing else I had to say. 
show them all they're wrong because I'm the champion. I'm the real champion. There'll never be one like me. And all of you people in Britain who rank me as the greatest, I'm going to prove I'm the greatest. I'm going to prove to you I'm the greatest. We're going to prove to the world I'm the greatest. This is my last fight. I don't want none of you to miss it. So please come to the theaters. I'm going to eat some raw meat and I'm going to train. I'm going to get ready and chop some more trees. Sorry, you got the rest of it now. Uh, is that working? Thank you uh, all for uh, coming here. It's wonderful to see familiar faces and also some unfamiliar faces just to prove that not everyone has been bribed, blackmailed and bullied into coming here this evening. Uh, there is a warning of the sort that they give on the news uh, about flash photography. Um, in this case, there will be sniffing and snivelling, because uh, I've got my first cold in a year, uh, arrived just in time for this evening. Um, I am honoured and astonished to be addressed uh, as professor, uh, even by some people uh, here who I know uh, are taking the mickey and think this is some kind of Saturnalian appointment. Um, but in a way, um, it was obvious that I was going to make a professor uh, someday. Um, my hair is often rumpled, my clothes a bit askew, my jacket a bit shabby. Um, I have made an effort tonight. Um, I have a taste for obscure lines of inquiry. I am infamously absent-minded. Uh, I am secretly addicted to pointless political intrigues, which I'm told would make me feel at home in any senior common room in Oxford. And most of the time, nobody knows what on earth I'm talking about. Looked at another way, it's wholly improbable. When I graduated, I became a journalist, having sensed years before that that it was the only career for a young man with a butterfly mind, a facility with words that my English master described with some contempt as meretricious, and an aversion to overbearing hierarchies. I had been at boarding school in the days before they turned into five-star hotels, and in contrast, newspapers in the early 1970s could be gloriously anarchic institutions. I also hated being cooped up indoors, especially on summer afternoons, and that led me, within weeks of my arrival in the filthy offices of the Northampton Chronicle and Echo in the summer of 1972, to gravitate towards the sports desk. And at that moment, by happy chance, the sports editor was in urgent need of a keen young man to help cover Northamptonshire County Cricket Club who I spent my spare sun, sun, summer afternoons watching anyway. And so, for the past, God help me, four decades, I have been paid to watch sport from Northampton to New Zealand, a place that remains remarkably reminiscent of Northampton circa 1972, <laughs> and most places in between. And though my life has brought me sadness as well as joy, I consider myself immensely blessed to have had a career 
that has given me a ringside seat at fascinating events, plus camaraderie, laughter, fun, and at least in the good old days, enough expenses for a reasonable supply of Sauvignon Blanc. I, I think the one great asset that I've had as a journalist is my short attention span. Uh, since I get bored easily, I'm conscious that readers do too, and, and audiences at lectures, I hope. And sport has never given me all the stimulation I craved, and so I also feel lucky to have been able to report many of the great non-sporting events of the era. War, political earthquakes, real earthquakes. Those things the world considers less trivial than sport. Or the things the world used to consider less trivial than sport. When I started in the business, the more pompous kind of journalists would refer to the sports desk as the toy department. The Chronicle and Echo had a single broadsheet page of sport. The Guardian, when I made it there seven years later, had most days just two pages. In 1979, Britain had three TV channels. None of them showed live league football. Things have changed. If you go to Liverpool by train, walk out of Lime Street Station and look uphill, you will see the local equivalent of Nelson's Column. It's the Wellington Column, 40 metres tall, with a bronze statue of the Duke of the Wellington on the top. On two sides of the plinth, a, European place, a list of European place names. Talavera, Fuentes de Anoro, Ciudad Rodrigo, Oporto, Badajoz, Salamanca, Toulouse, Nivelle, Catrabra. When I first studied them, I was writing my book about railways, so it was easy to imagine them as a list of stations on some exotic train journey across the continent. The more so as the terminus is, of course, Waterloo. But it's the wrong analogy. When I was last in Liverpool in May last year, I gravitated back to the monument. At that time, the Empire Theatre just over the road was showing a play called One Night in Istanbul, based on Liverpool Football Club's improbable victory in the final of the Champions League in 2005. It was Wellington himself who supposedly said that the Battle of Waterloo was won on the playing fields of Eton, meaning suppose that the healthy organised games of the English public school were crucial to the creation of a fit, spirited and motivated officer class. It's not clear that Wellington ever did say this, or ever could have done, since the only sporting activities he said he remembered from Eton were jumping across a brook and the odd punch-up. But now it's an unthinkable remark. It's unthinkable also that we would erect a 40 metre-high tribute to a general. This isn't because we've given up wars. Britain has been at war continuously for nearly 10 years now, and since the start of the 20th century, there has only been one year, oddly the year of global upheaval 1968, in which British soldiers have not been killed in action. But we're not very interested in the subject. I've spent several days including last Friday at the Chilcot Inquiry on Iraq. And I can tell you, even these pol the politicians who start these wars are not much interested. 
We venerate the names of the dead soldiers, momentarily anyway, which never happened in Wellington's time. We turn away from the wounded, as we have always done. But in Britain, our leading warriors neither die in battle like Nelson, nor become Prime Minister and get a state funeral as Wellington did. Graduates of this university become Prime Minister after gaining experience in the law courts, in laboratories finding ways of making ice cream less tasty and more profitable, <laughs> Margaret Thatcher, or in the case of the present incumbent being a public relations officer for a television company. We hear of generals largely for their role in Whitehall infighting. So as far as the public is, is concerned, sport is not a preparation for life or death. It's an end in itself. It's not an enjoyable diversion. It's become central to our lives individually and collectively. It's not possible to follow accurately the progress of the war in Afghanistan, even if we could be bothered to do so, because the Ministry of Defence's public relations officers control access to the front line, even for the press. In fact, especially for the press. The main lesson learned from Vietnam was not, as you might think, to avoid foreign entanglements unless they have clarity of purpose and an assured outcome, but to keep proper control of the information stream for wars that have neither clarity of purpose nor an assured outcome. At the Battle of Manassas, the opening contest of the US Civil War, quotes, hundreds of Washington civilians rode out to join the advancing army, hoping to see a real battle. Some brought binoculars, picnic baskets, bottles of champagne. Close quotes. There are no picnickers in Helmand province. On the other hand, if you were sleepless at 4 a.m. this morning, knowing you could catch up by having a ziz at this lecture, you could, without getting dressed, have watched any of the following. Water Sports World. A rerun of the 1997 Greater Milwaukee Golf Championship at Brown Deer Park. The unceasing drumbeat of up-to-date information from either Sky Sports News or Eurosport News. World Wrestling Late Night Raw, introduced by CM Punk, featuring Randy Orton, The Nexus and The Miz. Coverage of the All-American Bass Fishing Championship from the Grey Lakes, Arkansas. First prize, $120,000 and a coveted place in the Forest Wood Cup. Just what I've always coveted. <laughs> the Australian Open Tennis live. Australian Racing from Taree and Townsville. Big opinions and heated debate on all things football on ESPN. The FIM MX2 World Championship. I'm not sure what that is, but it's presumably coveted by someone. Cage Wars 8, hosting fighters from around the world in a spectacular night of mixed martial arts action. Highlights of the 1995 Ireland v England rugby match, highlights of the 1996-97 Premiership season, 
live ice hockey, the LA Kings against the Boston Bruins, and archive fo- footage for the 1991 All-Ireland Gaelic football final, a roundup of yesterday's racing from Kempton and Weatherby, and the IBF super middleweight title contest between Lucianne Boot and Jesse Brinkley. 4 a.m. this very morning, Nesson Dorma. It was only the onset of boring middle-aged that prevented me still being up at 5 a.m. the other Saturday and sufficiently drunk or stoned to watch on Channel 419 Extreme Sports Girl Racers, eight gorgeous girls behind the wheel in a high-octane competition to determine which of them is the ultimate girl racer. In all, thanks to the ingenuity of Sky TV controlled but not yet wholly owned by News International, sponsors of this this series of lectures, I have access to 29 TV channels wholly devoted to sport. And though I hardly dare mention it uh, on this particular occasion, this does not include all the websites whereby you can, so I am told, get a great deal of this stuff without paying Sky anything. There is perhaps thus nowhere more appropriate than the base of the Wellington Column to consider this astonishing change in society. Liverpool has one recent statue to to a former manager of Liverpool Football Club, Bill Shankly. There is pressure to have another to his successor, Bob Paisley. And it occurred to me that the modern equivalent of the Wellington Plinth would list the recent battlegrounds, the places where Liverpool won their European trophies. Rome, Wembley, Paris, Rome again, Mönchengladbach, Bruges, Dortmund, Istanbul. Perhaps in the great tradition of military history we will gloss over Brussels, home of the Heysel Stadium, scene of Liverpool's most disgraceful defeat on a night when sport and war merged and 39 people died, mostly Juventus supporters. And now the theatre has been roped in too. One night in Istanbul's run last May was a return engagement. The drama critic of the Liverpool Daily Post said, This is not theatre, this is an exploitation. He was excoriated by irate readers on the paper's website. They'd all loved it. This is a world you might think that has changed a great deal since the Duke of Wellington's day. It has changed far, far quicker than that. These grey hairs and my snivelling infirmities notwithstanding, I'm not that old. I don't yet qualify for free prescriptions or a senior rail card that would have enabled me to get here 20-30% cheaper. So it's no more than half a century since I was at prep school at Wallingford, not far from here, where I won a prize two years running for what was mysteriously known as general proficiency. (laughs) The first time I was given a book called Folk Tales of Greece and Rome, which is still somewhere on my shelves, but has never been opened from that day to this. The second time, the school had an uncharacteristic fit of liberalism and laid a selection of books on a couple of tables so the prize winners could choose their own. I spotted right at the back something called the Encyclopedia of Sport and snaffled it. The reaction from my schoolmates, all of them male, was instructive. They were furious. Not because they wanted it themselves, although jealousy might have been a factor, but out of the peculiar censoriousness to which small boys are prone. 
I had offended against the code. Work was work and sport was sport, and who was I to start mixing them up? I should have chosen a proper book. Games and PE were part of the curriculum, for sure, but following sport was not something not exactly improper, but just a little outre. Edgy, we might say now. It was boys' business, not schools. We listened to the football results on our transistors and mocked each other where, when appropriate, which meant I got teased a lot since I supported Northampton Town and still do, heaven help me, although last Saturday, Northampton 2, Oxford 1. But I would have had no idea, for instance, which football club, if any, a teacher might have supported, or who Harold Macmillan as Prime Minister might have supported. Um, as far as school teachers were concerned, th this was something that was never discussed, uh, even in the lighter moments of a lesson. M my prize, however, had two long-lasting consequences. I devoured every word of that book, with its lists of FA Cup and Grand National winners, which is a partial explanation for the fact that the dog in Lewis Harold were once again Herefordshire pub quiz champions last year. <laughs> On the other hand, I never did win another school prize. And until a few months ago, you could have got a thousand to one with any bookmaker in London against me ever becoming a professor at Oxford University. <laughs> the point I'm making is that sport, not just in the 1950s and 1960s, but I'd say into the 1990s did not occupy the central and obsessive place in society that it does now. And it's a vital change in the history of sport and it's a vital change in the history of the media. And it's a vital change in the history of society as a whole. We now have, of course, a different attitude towards participation. If you'd said to my generation of schoolboys as we flogged our way through compulsory cross countries um, that the smelly old plimsolls we wore on our feet were about to mutate into the hottest of all fashion items, we would never have believed you. Such an object of desire that kids would be shot on the street because they were wearing a desirable pair of sneakers. Insane. And the idea that people would run cross countries for fun, not just ordinary cross countries, but whole stacks of them put together, marathons. Incredible especially when you put it together with the fact that the general fit, fitness level of the population is now worse than ever. I was 15 when England won the World Cup in 1966, and my memory is that it was quite a big deal. There was national rejoicing, somewhat greater than would now occur if a plucky lass from Doncaster won a bronze medal in the Olympic women's under 63 kilogram judo. Memory suggests that the rejoicing was actually less than greeted England's victory in the final of the 2003 Rugby World Cup, a competition which, take away the British Isles, only has four other countries in serious contention, or indeed the victory in the 2005 Ashes, contested by one other country. My memory isn't false. Last year, Tim Delisle went through the old newspaper files for an article in Intelligent Life magazine and looked at the reports on the Monday morning after the 1966 World Cup final, the match having finished too late on the Saturday afternoon for the early editions of the Sunday papers to do it justice. 
The lead story in Monday's Daily Mirror, then Britain's biggest selling paper by far, was a bouncing baby girl for Princess Alex. Winning the World Cup, Delisle noted, was not as big as the birth of Marina Ogilvie, the Queen's first cousin once removed. The final was reported on two of the Mirror's tabloid sports pages, inside, not even the back page. Let's return to the 2005 Ashes win for a moment. When I attended the post-election press conference... <laughs> when I attended... When I attended the two, um, when I attended the post-election press conference this uh, last year, given by David Cameron and Nick Clegg, uh, the famous gay marriage uh, press conference in the Downing Street Garden, someone very proudly pointed out the bush behind which a rat-assed Freddie Flintoff had urinated during the. Prime Minister's reception, i.e. Tony Blair's reception, following their open-top bus, open bus tour and hysterical reception in Trafalgar Square the day after the final test. Uh, Flintoff, you may remember, was not disgraced for uh, his performance in the, garden, in the garden. Indeed, every member of the Ashes squad was named in the next honours list, including Paul Collingwood, who played in one test match, scored 17 runs in his two innings, bowled four wicketless overs, and was rewarded by Tony Blair with the most ridiculous MBE in history. <laughs> now, let's return to 1966. After the final, the players were invited to some kind of official dinner. It was a fairly pointless occasion, and the wives were confined to an upstairs room. Jack Charlton, England's centre-half, then went out drinking with his journalist mate Jim Mossop. They ended up being invited to a party in Walthamstow and sleeping on the floor, as best they could remember. <laughs> Others just drifted off to nightclubs or went home. My favourite story for the 1966 final was of Jeff Hurst, whose hat-trick won England the World Cup, saying his farewells to the famously lugubrious manager Alf Ramsey. See you next game, Alf. Ramsey was not going to commit himself. Perhaps, Geoffrey. Perhaps. The Prime Minister of the day, Harold Wilson, was not averse to the odd populist gesture, and Ramsey was indeed knighted the following year. Hearst did not even get an MBE until 1977, 11 years later, and his knighthood came in 1998, for no discernible reason except that Tony Blair was, as usual, in search of a headline. By then, though, football's place in society was very, very different. In England, 19, in 1996, England hosted its first major football tournament since 1966, the European Championship. This time, they did not win. And personally, I was as pleased as I had been when they did win, because by now, the madness had taken over. This was the tournament when the Daily Mirror, then edited by one Piers Morgan, carried the front-page headline on the day of England's semi-final, Achtung, surrender, for you, Fritz, the Euro 96 championship is over. 
this prediction was as accurate as most Daily Mirror predictions of that era. Germany beat England on penalties and went on to win the final. The loss of proportion in that tournament, I have to say, was not confined to the down market tabloids. I worked for The Guardian for 25 years, and in that time I was, very, I was lucky enough to write very few pieces that failed to make it into the paper. Only once was I censored and told that my proposed subject matter was unwelcome on grounds of taste. That was during that tournament when I suggested writing an article saying why I wanted England to lose because everything had got out of hand. The nation was not ready for such sedition, I was told. My reporting career has included one brief, not especially heroic, stint as a war reporter in the first Gulf War. It was while I was being driven across a minefield on the Kuwait-Saudi border by a crazed Irish photographer that I swore never again to moan at a county cricket match. But even this short excursion into combat puts me ahead of the five most recent British Prime Ministers, all of whom have sent soldiers to die without having any experience of war themselves. There are subsidiary explanations. <laughs> Sorry, it's never warning. There are subsidiary explanations for the differences in attitude between 1966 and 1996. And we'll come to those that relate directly to the media later in these lectures. But the most important is this. In 1966, everyone then over the age of 25 would have had some kind of memory of the Second World War. Everyone over about 52 would have remembered the First World War. I knew an old bloke in my village who, when he talked about before the war, we were never quite sure whether he meant the Boer War. <laughs> Most males over 40 would have fought in the war in 1966. I knew people who had fought in both the first and the second. The memory of combat, the comradeship, the hardship and the horror ran through every section of society. Or as my father, Flight Lieutenant Max Engel, summed up 1939 to 1945, about ten minutes of blind terror and six years of sheer effing boredom. No one who lived through that time could regard sport as war or remotely analogous to war. No one who lived through it could regard the result of a football match as a matter of life or death. They could not have allowed a headline that began, Achtung Surrender, nor this, You Let Your Country Down, The Sun, June the 28th, 2010, the day after England's most recent World Cup debacle. <coughs> I believe, as someone who has loved sport all my life, that once we overrate its importance, we lose everything that makes it worthwhile. But we should never underrate its importance either. The urge for human beings to compete with each other seems to be innate, and sport represents its earliest manifestation. However inept we might be, it provides moments of the most intense delight and satisfaction. And I saw it all afresh last year with my three-year-old great-nephew, who lives at North Hinksy up the road when we put up his first goal on the back lawn on a warm summer's afternoon and I let the ball trickle through my legs the first time for him to score. We experience it every time, about once a year in my case, when we connect with the golf ball just right and it sails straight down the middle of the fairway. 
when we just clip, a, clip the line with a forehand passing shot or take a miraculous catch on the boundary. The endeavour doesn't even have to be athletic. Personally, I get my kicks out of vanquishing the bookmakers now and again by backing a 10 to 1 winner or just by putting down a seven letter word playing the computer on my iPhone Scrabble app. It can work for the very old as well as for the very young. I've seen a 95 year old woman housebound and fading become re-engaged by life because there is a test series on telly and I don't believe anyone has ever decided life is not worth living when they have a promising anti-post betting voucher in their pockets. <laughs> we are looking always it seems for someone to cheer, a tribe to belong to and that is a more complex process for those of us in these islands than anywhere else in the world because our identity is so confused. Do we support England, Scotland, Wales, the whole of Ireland, as in rugby, Northern Ireland, as in football, the Republic of Ireland, Britain, Team GB, as at the Olympics, the UK, or the British Isles, as on Lions rugby tours? Or are we, most improbably of all, as in the chant that went up from the stands at the, sudden, at the sodden Ryder Cup last October? Europe! Europe! <laughs> Do you think those who endured the war were above all this? The very reverse. On Whit Monday 1944, the week before D-Day, there was a cricket match at Lords between England and Australia. Not official teams or full strength of course, but there were a lot of Australian airmen in the UK and both teams fielded famous names lightly camouflaged for wartime purposes. Squadron leader W.J. Edrich, Flight Lieutenant W.R. Hammond, Lieutenant Colonel G.O. Allen, Flight Sergeant K.R. Miller. An irrelevance given the greater game afoot? Not so. It was a blazing hot day. The attendants reported wisdom, with thousands left outside when the gates were closed at quarter past twelve, numbered about 28,000. Such scenes were repeated even more spectacularly a year later when England and Australia played a series of unofficial victory tests and throughout the rest of the 1940s when crowds even at routine county cricket matches and lower division football matches attained peaks never matched before or since. The great cricketing heroes of that era were the Australian, the aforesaid Keith Miller and his England opponent and chum, Dennis Compton. Both of them played cricket with a rare exuberance and joie de vivre that enchanted spectators. Both men led what was then known as gay lives, i.e. enthusiastically heterosexual. Miller was a fighter pilot in the war, flying mosquitoes in raids over occupied Denmark. He came close to death, his biographer noted, in six separate wartime incidents. Later, so the story goes, someone mentioned the word pressure in the context of cricket. Pressure, Miller replied, is a Messerschmitt up your ass. <laughs> it is easy to over-sentimentalise the past, especially in sport. Do we resent the fact that Wayne Rooney earns as much in a week as an, av uh, uh, as an average football supporter earns in seven years? and as armies have encountered ensuring that he may pays the minimum possible tax on that as well, 
Do we resent it? Well, we bloody well do, actually. We're British. But remember that when Nat Lofthouse was the idol of Bolton and England, he was being paid £20 a week, £20 a week, rather than Rooney's £180,000. £20 was the maximum, the maximum, for any footballer in England until 1961, 50 years ago this week, as it happens. Allowing for price inflation, that's £20 is worth about £350 today, and wage inflation makes it equivalent to about £800. So in practice, Rooney is only earning about 200 times as much as Lofthouse. And this would always be accompanied by staggering meanness on the part of employers. Um, in old time sport, this was perhaps most acute in rugby union, notionally an amateur sport, of course, but one with an ingrained habit of making sure its players were either being paid back handers or actually earning less than zero uh, to represent their countries. The most staggering anecdote I know concerns the Scottish international Jock Weems, who requested a new jersey when he was picked to play England in 1920. He was asked what had happened to the jersey he was given for his previous match six years earlier. In the intervening fairly eventful years, Weems hadn't just lost a jersey, he'd lost an eye, which was not in the peculiar circumstances of 1920 necessarily a disqualification from international rugby. He actually played against a French opponent with the same affliction. The loss of a jersey might have been a disqualification. As late as in 1960, the huge lock forward Peter Stagg was reputedly unable to get a new pair of Scottish socks to replace the one that had developed holes, so he painted bits of his leg a sock-like blue to match. <laughs> and in the 1970s, the Ulsterman Stuart McKinney fought a lengthy battle with the Irish Rugby Board who insisted it was 18 miles, not 20, from Older Grove Airport to his home in Jordanstown and that therefore he was entitled to only £1.80 in mileage on return from international duty and not £2. McKinney won the argument just once by claiming, it being the height of the troubles, that an army roadblock had forced a diversion. <laughs> We also like to believe that there was a time when sport was played hard but fair, that cricketers would walk when they knew they had nicked a catch to the wicketkeeper rather than waiting for the umpire's verdict. One of Compton's England teammates was especially famous for this and is regularly cited by nostalgics for his devotion to the spirit of cricket. It is not churlish to mention that many of his contemporary opponents believed he would indeed walk in situations that didn't matter when he had scored 150 or the team had 400 on the board, thus building his reputation with the umpires for honesty, but was somewhat less inclined to go when the chips were down and the heat was on, when he had the nearest cricketing equivalent to a Messerschmitt up his arse. It was thus a peculiarly subtle and insidious form of cheating. And this sporting Arcadia did not necessarily exclude extreme violence. As David Lacey pointed out in The Guardian only last week when reminiscing about Nat Lofthouse, 
who had just died, aged 85, he said back then there was a more general acceptance of football's physical side and players were less inclined to writhe in agony after a hard tackle. Or as Lofthouse himself put it, there were plenty of fellows who would kick your bollocks off. The difference was that at the end they'd shake your hand and help you look for them. <laughs> In 1987, three England rugby players were banned after a punch-up against the Welsh at the Arms Park. The old Welsh curmudgeon Will Fuller reporting at the match for the Sunday Telegraph was appalled. I thought the whole point of rugby was to kick six, six bells out of each other for an hour and a half and then drink six pints with each other for six hours and a half. Only six point, pints, I thought, on hearing this. The game must have already been on the turn from its old convivial self to its unsmiling modern incarnation. In 2009, Harlequins, a rugby club whose very name summed up the old spirit of the game, were involved in the Bloodgate scandal, in which their director of rugby, Dean Richards, arranged for the players to be given blood capsules to make it appear they were cut and could thus be substituted for tactical reasons. What shocked some people in rugby was not the trickery itself, but the fact that it was forced on the players from above. In the old days, said the rugby writer Paul Rees, the game was for the players. They didn't need a Dean Richards figure to order a bending of the rules to gain an advantage. Just after that came Crashgate, the revelation that the young racing driver Nelson Piquet Jr. had been ordered by his Renault team bosses to have an accident in the 2008 Singapore Grand Prix. This enabled his senior teammate, Fernando Alonso, to take advantage of the safety rules and win a race he wouldn't have done. This, said Simon Barnes in the Times, was the worst single piece of cheating in the history of sport. Not an act of cheating as mere fraudulence, rather it was cheating as a potentially lethal act, as potential murder. I'm an enthusiastic watcher of US baseball but no kind of insider and I know that in, 19, in the 1980s the use of steroids was widespread. I remember the crowd chanting steroids, steroids at, a drug, at an obviously drug fueled slugger called Jose Canseco. It is inconceivable that the officials of Major League Baseball and the journalists who covered the game didn't know this. But it was almost two decades before Major League Baseball took any action, which, given what we know about the damage that steroids can uh, cause to heart and other organs, also could constitute potential murder. But we seem to have moved from instinctive cheating, the urge to gain an edge, perhaps connived at by authorities, to something more intense, more organised. At its most harmless end, we've seen how in cricket the umpire's decision has become not final, but semi-final. Perpetually second-guessed by technology that's really too sophisticated for the game between fallible humans that's actually being played. Quite simply, sport matters more than it did and more than it should. 
1966, Jack Charlton could go out after the World Cup final and get pissed with his journalist mate. Now the idea of even exchange of pleasantries between a leading footballer and a reporter that is not controlled by a public relations officer or a sponsor's representative is almost unthinkable. The 1966 final was shown on, in black and white at the time when Britain had only just acquired a third TV channel, BBC Two. Sport on TV was an occasional treat, mainly on Saturday afternoons and special occasions. It was not possible to bet on racing from Queensland at four in the morning. But that final also marked a kind of turning point. Nine of the England players agreed to wear Adidas boots and were paid £1,000 each, which only five years earlier would have been a year's salary, just for wearing boots, which were given to them for nothing. Players were amazed when they received the cash in notes on the Saturday morning. I would have bought my own, marvelled Alan Ball. But suddenly, footballers were starting to realise just how valuable their feet might be. So there's two separate questions I want to consider over the next few weeks. One is strictly a media question. What role did the media, newspapers, radio, TV, the internet, playing, getting us from the Duke of Wellington to the intense, complex, money-driven sporting business of today? The second is a little broader. Where do the med media fit into the power structure that governs this business? Where does the power lie? Who makes the ultimate decisions? It's like a murder mystery with a wide range of suspects. The form, is it one, the formal governing bodies of the sports? Two, their sponsors? Three, the peripheral businesses, like plimsoll makers? The TV companies competing for rights? The rest of the media commenting, promoting, occasionally exposing? Six, the professional sportsmen and women now so highly paid. Or seven, is it perhaps, least likely of all, the public themselves? I look on all this with a sceptical eye. I'm aware that the past was not wholly unsullied. And that if today people overrate the significance of sport, achtung surrender, that may be a sign of society's success. May you live in interesting times was allegedly a Chinese curse. It may not seem that way to journalists because we thrive on conflict. But a generation that has no experience of war and can thus get over-concerned with the result of a football match is, on the face of it, a lucky one. And yet, I find myself appalled by the sporting landscape I see around me. The obsession with money, the obsession with victory, the cod patriotism, the sheer volume of imbecility, entire radio stations given over to sporting chit-chat, 16-page football pull-outs in The Times, more space for sports reports in The Guardian than for home and foreign news put together, so many different reports in the same paper on the same football or cricket match that no one outside a secure mental institution could ever possibly read all this stuff. Next week, I'll start to discuss in detail how sports and the media develop together. I intend to unmask the biggest liar in the history of sports journalism. 
and I promise you he is very famous indeed. I also intend to consider the importance of masturbation. And if that doesn't build interest among an undergraduate audience at this university, there's really nothing more I can do. In the meantime, we need to understand both sports unimportance, both sports importance and its unimportance. The quote that provided the title for this lecture is attributed to Bill Shankly, the great Liverpool manager. And it, there are various versions, but it goes something like, some people think football's a matter of life and death, but they're wrong. It's much more important than that. Shankly, who grew up in Scottish poverty and spent two years down the pit, was being at once playful and profound, I think. Source, sport. Sport can be a source of delight to people whose lives are starved of delight, whether they're playing it or watching it. And I would like to find something amid all this, something of the delight and glory in sport that I found as a child that my son Laurie in his turn found and that my great nephew Harris is starting to find when he scores a goal in North Hinksy, which soon enough I suspect will come without me giving him any help. Outside back gardens, it becomes harder and harder to find that delight as the simple business of kicking or hitting a ball is complicated by people who have very different motives. And that's why I have to ask the time-honoured question from every back lord. Please, mister, can we have our ball back? Thank you.